Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 36, 2 Samuel chapter 23. Well, chapter 23 of 2 Samuel is actually divided into two parts. David's final oracle, some some call it his last will and testament, and then a listing of David's special war heroes. Now the first part is filled with prophetic utterances whereby David is more or less playing the role of a prophet. And then the second part is mostly historical and it speaks of a number of warriors who played key roles in David's military exploits. And then it talks about how they fit into a chain of command. Now, we only read the first seven verses last week. However, I also mentioned that one of the intriguing aspects of this section is how it is an extension of another divine oracle that has been given hundreds of years earlier and through a Gentile seer named Balaam. So let's read 2 Samuel 23 in its entirety. We're going to do a lot of reading today, so keep your Bibles handy. Here are David's last words. This is the speech of David, the son of Yeshai, Jesse, the speech of the man who has been raised up, the anointed one by the God of Jacob, the sweet singer of Israel. The spirit of Adonai spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, A ruler over people must be upright, ruling in the fear of God. Like the morning light at sunrise on a cloudless day that makes the grass on the earth sparkle after a rain. For my house stands firm with God. He made an everlasting covenant with me. It is in order, fully assured, that he will bring to full growth all my salvation and every desire. But the ungodly are like thorn bushes, to be pushed aside, every one of them. They can't be taken in one's hand. To touch them, one uses a pitchfork, a spear shaft, and then only to burn them where they lie. Now, following are the names of David's warrior heroes. Yoshev, Bashvet, the Tachmoni, chief of the three, also known as Adino the Etzni. He is the one who came against 800 men and he killed, whom he killed in a single encounter. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohi, one of the three warriors with David when they put their lives in jeopardy against the Philistines who were there assembled for battle while the men of Israel had gone away. He stood firm and attacked the Philistines until his hand went into spasm so that he couldn't let go of his sword. Adonai accomplished a great victory that day, but the people didn't return until he had finished and then only to plunder the bodies of the dead. After him was Shema, the son of Agay the Harari. The Philistines had assembled at Lahi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the middle of the plot and defended it, killing the Philistines, and Adonai brought about a great victory. Now during harvest season, three of the thirty leaders went down and came to David at the cave of Adullam when a company of Philistines had set up camp in the Rephaim Valley. And at that time David was in the fortress in the garrison of the Philistines in Beit Lechem. David had a craving and said, I wish someone would, uh, could give me water to drink from the well by the gate of Beit Lechem. And the three warrior heroes broke through the army of the Philistines and drew water from that well by the gate of Beit Lechem, took it and gave it to David. But he wouldn't drink it. Instead, he poured it out to Adonai and he said, Adonai, heaven forbid that I should do such a thing. Am I to drink the blood of men who went and put their lives in jeopardy? He would not consent to drink it. These are the things the three warrior heroes did. Abishai, the brother of uh, Yoab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of these three. He raised his spear against 300 men and killed them. Thus he had a reputation even among the three. He had the most honor of these three and was therefore made their leader. However, he did not achieve the status of the first three. 
Baniah, the son of Yehoyada, the son of a valiant man of Kavziel, was a man of many exploits. He struck down two lion-hearted men of Moab. One day when, he, when it was snowing, he went down into a pit and killed a lion. Here is how he killed an Egyptian, a man of intimidating appearance. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand and he went down to him with only a stick. And he seized the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These are the things that Benyah, the son of Yehoyada, did that earned him a name among the three warrior heroes. He had more honor than the thirty, but he did not achieve the status of the first three. David put him in command of his personal guard. Azahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elchanan, the son of Dodo of Beit Lechem, Shema, the Harodi, Alika, the Harodi, Haletz, the Palti, uh, Ira, son of Ikesh from Tekoa, Aviatzer from Anatot, Mavunai, the Hushtai, Salmon, the Achoki, Mahrai, the uh, Natofati, Halev, the son of Banana, the uh, Natofati, Itai, the son of Revai from Giba, all the, of the people of uh, Benjamin. Beniyahu from Piraton, Hidai from the Wadis of Gash, Avi Av Alvon, the Arvati, Azmavet, the Barhumi, Eli Achba, the Shah Alvoni of the sons of Yashen, Yohanatan, Shama the Harari, Achyam, the son of Sharar, the Arari, Eliphelet, the son of Achasbai, the son of Maakati, Eliam, the son of Achitophel from Gilo, Hetzrai from Carmel, Paarai, the Arbi, Yigal, the son of Natan of Tsova, Bani, the Gadi, Selech, the Amoni, Nahrai, the Beiroti, armor bearer, to Joab, the son of Tzairah, Ira, the Yitri, Garev, the Yitri, and Uriah, the Hittite. 37 in all. Now, as we worked our way through the previous chapter, chapter 22, I pointed out that in a couple of places in particular, David's assessment of why God so graciously delivered him could be nothing else than as a divine reward for David's consistent uprightness and lack of sin. That is, David saw himself as meriting God's favor, therefore I label those thoughts of David's as boasting, not a tad delusional considering his pretty well-known affair with Bathsheba and then the murder of Uriah, her husband. Now, many modern Bible critics who, who would agree with my view of chapter 22 say that this speech of David's in chapter 23 is just more of the same. That David is merely once again elevating himself using lofty language. Well, I take issue with the idea that verses 1 through 7 form a run-of-the-mill psalm written by David and to be compared with the scores of others that he authored. Jewish sages rightly note that this passage has David acknowledging that this is not a mere poem, but rather it's an oracle from Yehovah. It's not logical that David would speak of these words in verse 2 as, The Spirit of Adonai spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. If he was merely continuing the thought pattern of chapter 22, where he was seeking the reason for Jehovah blessing him so greatly, and then assuming it was due to his own innocence. The Bible uses a, a formula, so to speak when introducing a divine oracle or a divine prophecy. And we see that formula in use here. It says, something to the effect that the person speaking 
these words are not speaking his own words, but rather is repeating, usually word for word, something that God has told them. The words themselves openly and unambiguously claim that these are God's direct words. Thus the words are not divinely inspired, they are divine. Now let me take a moment to explain the difference between those two things. The bulk of the recorded Bible, the the Bible we all carry about, is not full of direct statements made by the Lord. Rather, most are statements made by humans, but whose words have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay? They are words that come from men's minds. They are their own words. But these humans have been enlightened in some area of understanding and so are being led by God to say them. A divine oracle is different. When a prophet says, this is a message from God, then what he is saying is not his own words coming from his own mind. Rather, he was given a speech directly from God. And it is that prophet's duty to pass it along without modification, without interpretation, without corruption. A biblical scholar might say that a divine oracle as pronounced by a prophet is of a higher level of inspiration than words spoken by even the greatest Bible heroes. And I think that's a pretty good way to think about it. Now don't let this idea of various levels of divine inspiration trouble you. It was that kind of determination that led to ecumenical councils of humans determining which of the many religious letters and writings and, and historical accounts and gospel accounts that were in existence were worthy of being counted as Holy Scripture and the remainder not. That is precisely how the New Testament was formed. And to a lesser degree, how the Old Testament was formed. That something is of lesser inspiration does not make it less accurate or reliable. Thus, when we read the Bible, even though we are to especially pay attention when it is God directly speaking, that doesn't mean that the remaining 98% of the Bible, that we ought to question it. That we ought to question the authenticity or the reliability of the content. See, such reasoning was used by the ancient Hebrews to put the place of the Apocrypha, books such as Maccabees and Sirach, Tobit, others as a notch lower in inspiration than the other writings that form the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Yet, they were considered, still considered, as inspired. And similar reasoning was also used by the Christian bishops in the councils of Nicaea and Laodicea of the 4th and 5th centuries AD who also determined which writings would form the Christian Bible, the New Testament, and which others would continue to be seen as merely authoritative. That is, they were good for teaching and instruction and for godly wisdom, but they were not considered as holy. Thus, while we're free to read David's words in chapter 22 and at once understand that while the words are accurately recorded, that indeed David held some incorrect views about himself. But we are to view the first seven verses of chapter 23 as on a higher level of divine inspiration since these are not David's words at all, but they are God's spoken through David's mouth. 
so we're not free to question the veracity of what is being spoken. Instead, we are to take it as unassailable, as perfect divine truth. Now in verse 1, we are told that this is the speech of David. The Hebrew used for the word speech, in this case, is neum. And it more means an utterance or an oracle in a prophetic sense, rather than just merely speaking or humanly contrived speech. Further, despite all the boasting that we saw in the previous chapter, here David begins by humbly stating that essentially he was not born to the kingship, nor did he merit it by his deeds. He became a king only because God, for his own good reasons, elevated David into that position. Later in this verse, David is called the sweet singer of Israel, or in Hebrew, Naim Samir. The idea is that David is a pleasant-sounding songwriter who does so in the context of being loyal to the God of Israel. And this ability to pen inspirational praises and prayers to the God of Israel that's really almost unmatched in history. That moves our souls to this very day. That's to be considered as a spiritual gift from God to David. What in, what in modern times we all seek. These spiritual gifts. In fact, there are three attributes of David listed here that are all seen as direct actions or gifts of God. David was raised up. He was made a monarch in men's eyes. He was anointed of God. That is, he was God's chosen king from a spiritual point of view. And he's an inspirational songwriter and musician. Well, it's in verse 2 that we get the critical information that what is to follow now is a direct oracle from God. David says that the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, spoke in him or through him, depending on your translation, meaning that David did not receive audible communication from the Lord, as did Moses, but rather received the words by internal divine revelation. Thus David can truthfully say that it is God's word that's on his tongue as opposed to his own. Actually, in Hebrew, the verse says something even more powerful. It says that the Ruach of Yehovah Dabar in David, the Lord's Milah was placed upon David's tongue. Milah has a similar meaning to Neum, oracle, except that it can be used a little bit more generically. The idea is that a Milah is a complete message as opposed to saying it's a, a brief instruction. So it's a complete and important message from God that David is going to utter and we're going to hear. But it's the word Debar that gets the rabbi's attention. Rashi says that in Holy Scripture, Debar is an important term and it is not used to characterize any other of David's songs or psalms. Now let me remind you that back in Exodus, we learned that although Christians label what Moses received on Mount Sinai as the Ten Commandments, in fact, the word commandments is a complete misnomer. In Hebrew, there's a common word for commandments. Mitzvot. Mitzvot. But that's not the word used in the Bible for the Ten Commandments. Okay? Rather, that word is dabar, which means word. So what Moses received 
were the ten dabarim, not the ten mitzvot, the ten words, not the ten commandments. In ancient times, a word from the gods was seen as an awesome thing. The Hebrews especially understood words and speech as mysterious and powerful. The Bible says that Jehovah spoke the universe into existence. Sometimes modern day believers, commentators especially, think that's just a cop out. Saying that God spoke everything into existence is just kind of a way around the problem of explaining how God did it. That's not so. We're told in Scripture that Messiah is the Word. He is the Dabar of God. So when it's used in the divine context, like here in verse 2 and as it pertains to this entire speech of David, the word, word, Dabar, is meant to evoke the idea of the very essence, the very embodiment of God in it. Just as we think of the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son as all essences of one God. Now, it's at this point that we need to pause and turn to a different book of the Bible so as to make a fascinating connection between what God is saying here and what He said through another person several hundred years earlier. So turn your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 24. Numbers 24, and I want you to follow along with me. Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. We're going to read from verses 1 through 19. When Bilam saw that it pleased Adonai to bless Israel, he didn't go, as at the other times, to make use of divination, but looked out towards the desert. Bilam raised his eyes, and he saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, and then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he made this pronouncement. This is the speech of of Bilam, son of Beor, the speech of the man whose eyes have been opened. The speech of him who hears God's words, who sees what Shaddai sees, who has fallen yet has open eyes. How lovely are your tents, Jacob, your encampments, Israel. They spread out like valleys, like gardens by the riverside, like succulent aloes planted by Adonai, like cedar trees next to the water. Water will flow from their branches. Their seed will have water aplenty. Their king will be higher than Agog and his kingdom lifted high. God, who brought them out of Egypt, gives them the strength of a wild ox. They will devour the nations opposing them, break their bones, pierce them with their arrows. And when they lie down, they crouch like a lion, or like a lioness who dares to rouse it. Blessed be all who bless you. Cursed be all who curse you. Belak blazed with fury against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to Balaam, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but here you have done nothing but bless them three times already. Now you had better escape to your own place. I had planned to reward you very well, but now Adonai has deprived you of your payment. And Balaam answered Balak, Didn't I tell the messengers you sent me that even if Balak would give me his palace full of silver and gold, I could not of my own accord go beyond the word of Adonai to do either good or bad? That what Adonai said is what I would say? But now that I'm going back to my own people, come, I will warn you what this people will do to your people in the Akhrit Hayamim, the world to come. So he made this pronouncement. This is the speech of Bilam, son of Beor, the speech of the man whose eyes have been opened, the speech of him who knows, uh, rather, who hears God's words, who knows what Elyon knows, who sees what Shaddai sees, who has fallen yet has open eyes. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not soon. 
A star will step forth from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel to crush the corners of Moab, destroy all descendants of Sheth. His enemies will be his possessions. Edom and Seir, possessions. Israel will do valiantly. From Jacob will come someone who will rule. And he will destroy what is left of the city. Balaam was speaking of the time in the future when Israel was in the land and when David would be raised up as God's anointed. But he was also speaking of a time even further into the future when Yeshua HaMashiach would appear. Now as we know with the benefit of hindsight, biblical prophecies, especially concerning the Messiah, often happen then they happen again a long time later in a different context. The term that Balaam used for this special person who would appear was a star. He says a star out of Jacob would arise. A star was an ancient and common Middle Eastern term for referring to a king. Now remember, this was at a time before Israel had even crossed over the Jordan and entered into the Promised Land. Israel was in no way looking to have a king. They were tribal. They were being led by Moses, and such a thing as a king was, was foreign to their minds. But Balaam prophesies that Israel will have a king in time. And so essentially, David was the prophetic fulfillment of Balaam's oracle. Now this is a good time to remind you that the standard Christian doctrine is that God did not want Israel to have a king. But that's simply not so. And the scriptures tell us the opposite. In fact, the entire book of Judges demonstrates to Israel their need for a king. It records the preparation for a king. And here, as early as Numbers we find a Gentile seer being used by Jehovah to pronounce a blessing, not a curse, that Israel will have a king. And the Lord will use that king to crush God's enemies. But whereas Balaam was the recipient of a divine revelation as a Gentile pagan with a closed eye, but by means of a vision, his eye was now open to the truth. David the Jew was the man who had been raised up on high by the Lord, anointed, and now given the next step, a progressive revelation that builds upon Balaam's oracle. Verse 3 of 2 Samuel 23 is quite an interesting one. And it's been rather rudely treated, I think, in an attempt to translate it into English. Take a look at it. Our complete Jewish Bible, for instance, says, The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, A ruler over people must be upright, ruling in the fear of God. The King James Version says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. The New American Standard says, The God of Israel says, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. Now, all of these are attempts at a dynamic translation because the more literal translation is a little odd sounding until we add in modern punctuation and explain the setting and that solves the problem here is the better sense of this verse the God of Israel says the rock of Israel speaks to me a ruler over men just a ruler in the fear of God. 
What we have here is a coronation speech. David is being told that at some time in the future, a new king that by definition will be from David's dynasty is going to be introduced and presented to God's people. To a person of ancient times, such a scene with this kind of speech would have been well understood. But to modern Westerners, this is kind of unfamiliar to us. So imagine this now. You are among multitudes of worshipers in the courtyard of the coming third temple of Israel. It's been prepared as the palace of the coming king of Israel, the one we know as the Christ. There stands Yeshua before the adoring crowds. And the ceremony gets underway with a booming voice out of the heavens, God's voice thundering like at Mount Sinai, as the Father presents Israel with His Son, who is their forever King, by saying, Here stands the ruler over men. He is just. He is a ruler in the fear of God. That's the sense of this scene, and it just gives me the shivers. Now notice that the Lord pronounces the ruler as a ruler over men. Adam in Hebrew. Adam means mankind in general. But over the past several centuries, the rabbis have struggled with that concept. Because they understand that whether it is a resurrected David or another man, this is obviously speaking of the Messiah. And in rabbinic Judaism, the Messiah is not for the world. He's for Israel. So they say that we should take the word Adam in this instance to mean only Israelites. But that's not intellectually honest. This is not unlike what I've spoken about to you in earlier lessons. That Christian leaders and teachers have developed a bad habit of reading denominational doctrines backwards into the scriptures. Trying to make the scriptures fit their predetermined ideas in order to uphold their religious notions. The rabbis have done similarly in relation to Messiah in order to bring about their predetermined ideas about Him and to make the Scriptures seem to fit with their teachings and rulings. So simply taking this passage in its plainest sense as it would have been when it was written down, we have God the Father pronouncing that His anointed, His Mashiach, is first and foremost a ruler over all mankind, not just over Israel. Second, the Father pronounces His King as just. The Hebrew word is sadik, And it's either a noun or an adjective. So, sadik, righteously just, is not what this forever King is doing It's what He is. He is just. Perfectly just. And this is due to His divine nature. And the third part of the coronation announcement is that this king is a ruler in the fear of God. That is, this ruler, pay close attention to this, This ruler is not coming in his own name or with a new divine law or entirely on his own accord. Rather, he is coming in the name of God the Father. He is being sent upon the command of God the Father. And his justice is entirely based on the regulations of God the Father. 
Thus the future kingdom of God will encompass all creation. And all creation will be ruled over by one person, the Messiah. Now verse 4 speaks about how everything is going to change upon the coronation of this new king. And the effects of this salvation are described as the light of the morning when the sun rises and bursts through the darkness of the clouds. The rabbis say that before David, when Saul ruled, Israel was clouded over and truth and righteousness was obscured. But now with the anointed ruler, the sun, S-U-N, sun, of righteousness is as bright as a cloudless sky as the sun steadily rises from horizon to zenith. A second metaphor for the dramatic change in circumstances is presented as green grass that thrives and sparkles after the rains. The grass is also a metaphor for God's people. And as we're going to see in a moment, it stands as a stark contrast to the thorns of evil men that we're going to read about in verses 6 and 7. Verse 5 speaks of what was promised to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Let's read this together. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, we're going to read verses 10 through 17. Just a short section. I will assign a place to my people Israel. I will plant them there so that they can live in their own place without being disturbed anymore. The wicked will no longer oppress them as they did at the beginning and as they did from the time I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. Instead, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Adonai tells to you, he's talking to David, that Adonai will make you a house. When your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you. One of your own flesh and blood, I will set up his rulership. He will build a house for my name. I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father for him. He will be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I will punish him with a rod and with blows, just as everyone gets punished. Nevertheless, my grace will not leave him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Thus, your house... And your kingdom will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever. Nathan told David all of these words and described this entire vision. Again, rabbinic Judaism takes great liberties and says that this covenant that's being spoken of is the Torah. And that the view does not follow the plain sense of the context of this passage. See, this everlasting covenant is speaking of this passage that we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In fact, this promise of God to David is so important to Christianity, so central to our understanding of Messiah that it's been dubbed the covenant of David. And it's been listed, been added to the list rather, of many many biblical covenants. I'm not entirely sure that it should be, because many promises are made between God and men, but not all rise to the level of a biblical covenant, such as that made with Noah and Abraham and and Moses. But I can also see the other side of this. And, And no doubt... The promise that God made to David helps to pin down the lineage of the coming Messiah. 
So you decide for yourself what status you'd like to give this so-called covenant of David. But note that this promise or covenant made to David was unconditional. We derive this by the words of chapter 23, verse 5, where it says, He made an everlasting covenant with me. It is in order. It is fully assured that He will bring to full growth all my salvation and my every desire. And indeed, the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7 makes it clear that even if David's descendants trespass against God, Oh, he'll punish them. However, unlike what happened with Saul, God's grace and promise will stand for David's dynasty, and especially as concerns Messiah. The idea is that all eventualities have been accounted for and planned for by God. No amount of falling away will cause the privilege of David's line producing the Messiah to be terminated. Now that is grace. So please don't tell me that the concept of grace only started with the book of Matthew as a so-called New Testament dispensation. The last half of verse 5 In fact, almost sounds like something St. Paul would have said. That he, God, will bring to full growth all my salvation and every desire. And of course, David is saying that God will bring about salvation, deliverance. And that all the delightful things he desires are are wrapped up in that God-provided deliverance. Now let me point out that where in English we have the word desires, in Hebrew it is chafetz. Chafetz. And that more means good things that are hoped for. Things that God wants His people to have. I think of it somewhat as God's shalom. It doesn't mean desires in the more modern western sense of it that it kind of brings to mind now a a, a want of selfish or decadent or even erotic things. It doesn't mean wealth or materialism. It has nothing that those who preach the prosperity doctrine would even be familiar with. It is, from a spiritual viewpoint, automatically accompanies salvation. It can only come from the Lord's hand. But in verse 6, we get the antithesis of all that has been promised to this point. The previous verses dealt with God's faithful worshipers. Verse 6 now deals with the wicked. And it uses the metaphor of thorns as contrasted with verse 4, where the faithful are compared to green grass. Thus the righteous will receive their Savior and their salvation. At the same time that the wicked receive God's wrath and destruction. Like our complete Jewish Bible, most Bibles will say that these thorns are godless men. But in reality... It only says that the thorns are Baalial. Not even the sons of Baalial, as some translations use to at least get it a little bit closer to the original. Baalial is more an expression than a word. And as more research is done to understand what it meant, that word Baalial, to the ancient mind. Modern scholars such as Kyle McCarter say that a better translation would be something like fiends of hell. It is that strong of a statement. So worthless or godless kind of only scratches the surface of just how horrible these people are in the Lord's eyes and thus worthy only to, as it says in verse 7, 
To touch them, one uses a pitchfork or a spear shaft and then only to burn them where they lie. That is, they are so far gone, their condition is hopeless and decided that one doesn't even want to come into contact with such a person except by means of an iron shaft or a spear, lest we get dirtied or wounded. The only thing God has in store for them is destruction. And this meshes awfully well with what we're told in Revelation 19, 11-16. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 19. Told you we'd be using that Bible today. And we're not done yet. <clears throat> 19, 11-16. Revelation 19. Next I saw heaven opened, and there before me was a white horse, and sitting on it was the one called Faithful and True. And it is in righteousness that he passes judgment and goes to battle. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many royal crowns. And he had a name written which no one knew but himself. He was wearing a robe that had been soaked in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a staff of iron. It is he who treads the winepress from which flows the wine of the furious rage of Adonai, God of heaven's armies. And on his robe... And on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Notice how Christ is going to rule the nations with an iron instrument. And that he is the one who is going to lead heaven's armies in carrying out God's wrath upon the unrighteous, upon the thorns. Now, interestingly, when 2 Samuel 23, verse 7, speaks of burning the thorns where they lie, the Hebrew word is Shabbat, which means dwelling place, not where they lie. Thus, there are many good Bible scholars who believe that if a wicked person is in his dwelling place, can only be referring to hell. And that goes along with the idea of hell being a place of eternal fire and burning. Rashi chimes in with a very interesting observation, especially as it regards the burning up of the wicked. He says that the only benefit one gets from thorns is to burn them in order to warm oneself by the fire it produces. Now compare that to what it says in Ezekiel 39. Don't go there, I'm just going to read it to you. 39, 6-10. Listen to this. I will send fire against Magog and against those living securely in the coastlands. Then they will know that I am Adonai. I will make my holy name known among my people Israel. I will not allow my holy name to be profaned any longer. Then the Goyim, the Gentile nations, will know that I am Adonai, the Holy One in Israel. Yes, this is coming. It will be done, says Adonai Elohim. This is the day about which I have spoken. Those living in Israel's cities will go out and set fire to the weapons to use as fuel. The shields, the breastplates, bows, arrows, clubs, spears. They will use them for fire for seven years so they'll not need to gather wood from the fields or cut down any from the forest because they'll use the weapons for fire. Thus they will plunder those who plundered them and rob those who robbed them, says Adonai Elohim. This, of course, is speaking to the great battle 
with Gog and Magog that we usually call the Battle of Armageddon. And here the abandoned weapons of the wicked, the weapons of the thorns, will be gathered together to be burned, to produce heat for warming God's people. Rashi also points out that the wicked have no remedy for their sins as they pass from this world. Rather, they will only pass through the fires of Gehenom into the next world where their destiny is but to await God's final judgment upon them. Now let's, let's move on now. We'll spend just a very couple, short couple of minutes from the prophetic portion of this chapter in verses 1-7 through seven and into the more straightforward accounting of David's war heroes that begins in verse 8 and goes to the end of the chapter. We're going to spend a few minutes with this today. We'll, we'll finish this up next time. <clears throat> what I want for you to know is this same list of men can be found in 1 Chronicles 11. But there, there we'll find 16 more names added to the list. Now it's necessary to take many of the names with a grain of salt because the list has been greatly corrupted over the years. This isn't disputed, by the way. So due to copyist errors and some competing traditions, some names are different between the two lists and some names are so jumbled up that they're outright guesses. Now, only a few of the names are historically important anyway, so accuracy in this this instance isn't required to, to get the proper meaning across. Now, what we see is that David's heroes are divided into three groups, or better, three ranks. They're not equals. That's the point. We have a hierarchy. We have a chain of command. And the first and highest ranking consists of only three names. Yoshev, Bashvet, Eleazar, and Shema. And right off the bat, we have a problem with the name Yoshev, Bashvet, because it doesn't make any sense. In First Chronicles, this same person is called Yashovam. And almost certainly that's the correct name, or at least it's closer to correct. In the second rank which is listed in verses 18 and 20, are Abishai, David's nephew, and Banyah. The third rank consists of everybody else. We're going to go back next week and fill in all the blanks about David's heroes.